0: Good morning, glad y'all are here today, and glad that we're going to open back up to, the, to the, uh, the prophet Joel, I almost said the gospel of Joel, but uh, that would have been okay too, because we're going to see the gospel is in the prophet Joel. If you want to open up to chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, you'll find that if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, if you didn't bring a Bible, I would uh, recommend that you do so, but if you want to use one of the Pew Bibles there in front of you, You'll find it starting on page 840, Joel chapter 3. You'll remember from last week that Joel is uh, one of the minor prophets. Uh, We've talked before about how the minor prophets are called minor, uh, not because they're less important, not because they are uh, less fully God's Word or anything like that. Uh, They're called the minor prophets just simply because they're shorter than the major prophets, the longer prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and, and those books. We also noticed last week a, uh, a difference between Joel and Hosea. We just finished preaching through Hosea uh, before last week. Last week we started Joel. And we noticed that in the book of Hosea, he identifies himself as the son of Bere. He identifies himself as uh, a prophet during the time of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah uh, as kings of Judah. And during the time of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, uh, the king of Israel. So he gives us some really Uh, really good historical information and dating himself and this is the time period that I was writing in. If we go to the prophet after Joel, the next book is the the prophet Amos and Amos does the same thing. He identifies himself. He says that he was uh, among the shepherds of Tekoa and so we can look and find where Tekoa was. Uh, Maybe that means he was a shepherd himself. Later in his book he gives us some details about, about his life and about what he did but it says he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. It says that his prophecy is concerning Israel. So we know that he's writing about the northern kingdom. After they got divided, he's writing about the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And he mentions uh, Uzziah as being the king of Judah. He mentions Jeroboam, the son of Joash, as being the king of, of Israel. And then he says also that he's writing two years uh, before the earthquake. And so we don't know what the earthquake is, but we know that, it's, uh, that, that it was something that was, um, that was significant in the history of Israel so it was something that they can date date things by but both of these prophets Hosea and Amos and and other prophets were very detailed in their uh, setting themselves in the history of Israel so we know who they are we know when they're writing we know uh, something of the context that they're writing in well Joel's not that way we noted last week Joel identifies himself simply as the son of Pethuel we don't know who Pethuel is so that doesn't really help us with figuring out who, who Joel is either we don't know when Joel was writing. He doesn't mention any kings. Um, and, and so we don't really have have much of a context to date Joel at all. But as we mentioned last week, maybe that was on purpose. Maybe Joel did that on purpose to make his message an, uh, kind of an, an, a lasting message, uh, uh, an enduring message that is applicable to uh, multiple different time periods and multiple different, different contexts. I've told this story before, but... Uh, I remember talking to Josh Powell, one of our former pastors, and uh, he was telling this story about when he took his little, his little son Wilds to the zoo one day, and I don't know how old Wilds was, probably, probably five or six years old, and they were at the zoo, and they were going around to the different exhibits and looking at the different animals, and they got to the, to the area where the lions were, and they were looking at the lions, and they had seen them before, but they were looking at the lions, and uh, just all of a sudden, one of the lions began to roar. And they had been to the zoo several times, but they had never heard the lion roar before. And, and our, our former pastor, Josh Powell, talks about how, how loud it was, how, um, how you, could even, you, couldn't, you could hear the roar, but you could also kind of feel the roar as well, and, and just how powerful it, it sounded. And he said that his, his little boy, Wilds just kind of instinctively backed away and kind of got behind his legs, as if he could protect him from a lion if it was going to run through the fence or whatever. But he said in that moment, he began to think about that, and he was thinking, you know, that, that lion's roar is scary for, for wilds, and it was scary for him. And he was thinking, you know, if you're in the wild, if you're a hyena or if you're a zebra or if you're any kind of animal and you hear the lion roar like that, that's, that's a scary sound. Does that mean the lion's coming for you? He's coming against you, right? But he, but he was thinking, he said, but if you're, the, if you're a lion cub and you hear the lion roar like that, that's not a scary sound at all. That's a comforting sound because you know that's your dad coming to protect you. That roar, that power, that, that might is not coming against you. It's coming, it's coming for you. I can remember something similar happened when I was, uh, I don't know, probably eight or nine years old. I was at home by myself. My mom had gone uh, to the store or something and I don't know if my, my, I guess my brother and sister went with her or they were gone somewhere else. I don't remember. But I remember I was at home by myself and I was fairly young and I was there watching TV And someone knocked on the front door. And for some reason, I got super, super, super scared. And, you know, I grew up in a small town. We don't have bad people come to your house very often. And if they do, they don't knock on the front door. And so I don't know what I was scared about. But I got so scared. And so I I didn't know what to do. The door was unlocked. And so uh, I, I was so scared. They kept knocking. They wouldn't go away. They kept knocking. I remember going up to the door and kind of sitting on the floor right up next to the door so that if they looked in the window, they wouldn't be able to see me. Uh, and, and I was so scared, my heart was beating. I, I remember it even today. I was so scared, and then, on the other side of the door, I heard my grandmother talking and and the sound of her voice was was so comforting to me because it 's not even bad it 's my grandmother coming right and I was so happy to hear her voice and it, and, and I went from a moment of of terif- terrified fear to a moment of not scared at all and, and I think if we uh, w- when we see the the last chapter of of uh, Joel, these two, these two uh, events are, are, are kind of a good picture, a good explanation of what's happening in in the book of Joel, and especially in the final chapter of of Joel. So, if you have your Bibles open there to Joel chapter three, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing. It's a little bit long, but that's okay. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read read the whole thing. He says, "For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat." and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order, in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken." Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. (coughs) And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains will drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us. And God, we thank you as we have just sung that your word is more powerful than all earthly powers. And God, we pray this morning that it would be powerful here among us. God, we pray that your spirit would be here with us if he's promised that he would be. And God, we pray your spirit would be using your word in our lives. God, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Chapter 3 of Joel begins right where chapter 2 left off last last week. If you look at verse 1, it says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jacob... Or Judah and Jerusalem. God promises he's about to restore the fortunes of his people. This is the, the first point I want us to see this morning, is that God restores his people. God restores his people. Last week we saw that God takes sin very seriously. We saw that God judges sin. We saw that this judgment is coming in, the, in, in a full and final way in the future, at the day of the Lord that Joel talked about so much. But we also saw that this judgment often comes in a partial and specific way in the present. We saw that God even, and, and maybe especially, judges the sins of his own people. And it's true that God judges sin and that he judges the sins of his people, but, th- but there may be a better way to think about it. There may be a better way to look at it, um, a more nuanced way. The way that God deals with the sins of his people is in some ways analogous to the way that God uh, or the way that good and, and loving parents deal with the disobedience and the wrong behavior of, of their children. I had really good parents growing up. I had a, a mom and a dad both who were, who were committed to each other and were committed to my uh, siblings and me. And when I was growing up, I often took that for granted. And uh, looking back now, um, I, I do that less so, or, or at least try to take that for granted less, less so. But my parents provided for me. They cared for me. My dad often worked two or three jobs to make sure that, he, uh, that, that, that we were taken care of. My mom often went without things uh, that she wanted or needed to make sure that, that, that we had the clothes and the supplies and things that we needed for, for school. I can remember my mom putting things in layaway and, and, and then going back and making payments and, and, and those kind of things until she could pay it off and, and, and get them out. I, I had really good parents that, that loved me and, and took care of me and provided for me and, and supported me. But like I said a moment ago, I wasn't always grateful for my parents when I was growing up. And I didn't always agree with them or didn't always understand some of the rules that they made. Uh, and, and I could be kind of stubborn as a, as a kid. And I, I, can remember, I can remember sitting at the dining room table after supper at night uh, for hours because I was not going to eat my peas. I didn't like peas. I still don't like peas. But I wasn't going to eat them. But I sat there for hours and hours, sometimes two or three hours after supper was over, after my brother and sister were off playing, after my mom and dad were, were off doing whatever they were doing, watching TV or talking or, or whatever they were doing. But I was not going to give in and eat those peas, but my mom refused to give in too. And so I sat there. I smashed so many peas under the edge of the dining room table when I was a kid, so that, thinking that she would think maybe I ate them. she was teaching me that not only that I needed to eat the vegetables that she had given me, uh, but she was also teaching me or proving to me that I was not in charge and, and, and that I would respect the authority that she had over me and I would respect the, uh, the things that, that, that she had prepared for me. Other times, my disrespect or my defiance or my disobedience might have been greater than, than just not wanting to eat peas and, and I would get a greater punishment. And often... Uh, normally, that punishment would take the form of a, of a spanking, and sometimes my mom would do that herself. Or, uh, or other times she would make me go to my bedroom and sit on my bed until my dad got home. And, and, and that anticipation made the actual punishment worse when it finally did come. Um, but when he got home, then, then then that's what I would get. Sometimes my mom would 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 discipline me, and then when my dad when my dad got home, he would do it again for making her have to do it, right? And at the time, I didn't think that was fair, and I thought it was bad parenting, but, but I'm thankful for it now. At the time, it felt like, or it may have felt like, they were trying to destroy me. But they weren't. Obviously, that wasn't the case. Afterward, I would often go to my room, or, or I would be told to go to my room sometimes. And, and, uh, and, and after a few minutes, or for me to calm down, my, my mom or dad would come in, or, or I would just come out on my own, and, and we would have a talk. Right? And my mom would, would explain to me that she didn't like doing what she did and that it hurt her more than it hurt me. So I'm still not sure if that was true or not, but uh, she was trying to make me feel better, I guess. But she would tell me that she loved me and that whatever had caused the punishment was over. It had been dealt with already, and, and so we weren't, we weren't going to talk about it anymore. And, and what she was doing, looking back on it now, what she was doing is she was bringing me back into the, the family fellowship in good, in good standing. She was restoring me, right? They weren't trying to destroy me, they were trying to help me. They were trying to make me into a respectful, obedient, responsible person. They weren't trying to destroy me at all, they were disciplining me. They were absolutely judging my behavior and my attitude, but they were disciplining me. This is how God deals with the sins of his people. right? It's right to to look at it as judgment, but, but maybe a little bit more nuanced, maybe a little bit better way to look at it is He disciplines his people. He he makes them into the type of people that he wants them to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, Paul says this. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's judgment is is a discipline. I want to read a little bit longer passage. You don't have to turn here. But this is from Hebrews chapter 12. And listen to this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what, God is, for what God for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So when we think about the Lord judging his people, judging the sins of his people, it's maybe better to think about the Lord disciplining his people. The Lord judges the sins of his people as a means of disciplining them. And afterwards, he will restore his people. Look at the result of the Lord's discipline. Look at at Joel chapter 3. Back at our main passage, look at, look at verse 17. He says, so you, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip, shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the streambeds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. If you're under the Lord's discipline today, right now, then thank God that he's treating you as one of his sons. Thank God that he's treating you as a a real son, as a legitimate son. Thank God that he loves you enough to not let your sin destroy you. And then repent of your sin. Turn back to the Lord. Seek forgiveness and he will restore you. The Lord restores his people. Look back again to, to Joel chapter 2 that we looked at last week. Look, look back at verses 18 and 19. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you shall be satisfied, and I will no more make you a, a reproach among the nations. Skip down to verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you Abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Sometimes the Lord's restoration may take this form. He may restore his people financially or materially. Sometimes he does that. Here, Joel was saying he was about to do that for Judah. He may restore his people financially or materially. He may restore his people familially right he may give his people children he may restore relationships that have been strained or were broken he may restore his people in in many different ways many of us have experienced different blessings from the lord that might fit into one or more of those uh, categories however the most important aspect of god's restoration the lord's restoration of his people and the greatest blessing that we can receive from him is that he restores our relationship with him God judges our sin as a means of disciplining us, but that discipline doesn't last forever. The discipline has a purpose. And once that purpose is accomplished, the Lord restores us and restores us especially to good standing with himself. The first thing that Joel tells us in chapter 3 is that the Lord restores his people. The second thing that Joel tells us in chapter 3 is that God defends his people. God restores his people. God also defends his people he will not let his people be destroyed. We see a hint of this in chapter 2 that we looked at last week up at up at verse 27. He says you shall know that I am the that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I'm the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. This reminds me of the one year that I played middle school basketball. I was terrible. I only played basketball one year. Played football for every year that I could. Played basketball one year, and I was terrible. One day I came home and I had decided I was going to quit the basketball team. And it wasn't because I was so bad. In fact, I really, at the time, I don't think I realized how bad I really was. It wasn't because I was so bad. It was because that day at practice, our coach had sat us down. There were some people complaining that he only played the the people that he liked, the the boys that he liked. And so he sat the whole team down. We are going to have a team meeting and, and he said in front of everyone there, it's, it's kind of fun, it wasn't funny then, but it's kind of funny now. He said in front of everybody there, he said, I don't just play the boys that I liked. If I only played the boys I liked, I'd, I'd probably start Womble. But the truth is, he's only on the team because we need somebody tall to shoot over in practice. He said, that, he said that in front of the whole team. It's kind of funny looking back now. It wasn't funny then. I came home and I was ready to quit. I was not going to play basketball. I was going to quit the team. And so I had a talk with my dad when he got home, and, and we talked it, talked it out, and he wouldn't let me quit. I made a, made a commitment to be on the team, and, and, and he wouldn't let me quit the team. He said, I didn't have to play the next year if I didn't want to, but I, but I wasn't going to quit that year. I was going to finish out that year. Later on that night, I overheard him. He didn't know that I heard him, but I overheard him talking to my mom about that situation, and, and I heard how mad he was about it. A few days later, I don't think he still even knows this, but a few days later, I found out that he had gone to the coach and he explained to the coach that he would not be making those kind of comments in front of everyone else again. And, and the coach never said anything to me about it. My dad never said anything to me about it. But I overheard him telling my mom, the same dad that had disciplined me in, in, in different parts of my life that I thought was trying to, to destroy me at points in my life, the, the same dad that had disciplined me when I needed it also defended me when I needed it. The Lord restores his people. The Lord also defends his people. And we see this all throughout chapter 3. Look at at the second half of chapter 2. He says, I will enter into judgment with the nation there, and here's why he says, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. He's about to judge the nations as a way of defending his people. Uh, Verses 6 and 7 Say, you have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. Again, he's going to defend his people against their enemies. Verse 19 says, Egypt will become a desolation, and Edom a a desolate wilderness. And here's why. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they've shed innocent blood in their land. The first part of verse 21 says, I will avenge their blood. Let's be clear this morning. The Lord cares about what's happening with his people. The Lord cares about what's happening with his people. If you're being unjustly wronged right now in in some aspect of your life, know that the Lord knows that, the Lord sees that, and the Lord cares about that. My dad didn't always defend me. If I had a problem with the teacher at school, and that teacher punished me for doing something that I should have been punished for, he took the teacher's side, right? He didn't always defend me. If I was wrong, he let me know it. The Lord's the same way. But if you're being unjustly wronged by an employee, by a friend, by a family member, or whoever, the Lord knows that, and the Lord cares about that. The scriptures say that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Sometimes in in some situations, it it might be right or it might be appropriate for us to defend ourselves, but we don't always have to defend ourselves. We can rest knowing the Lord does that. One of my favorite passages that that has been a comfort to me in different situations in life is Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 11. I'm actually going to read verses 10 to 12, if I can turn there. Listen to this. This is Jeremiah, the prophet of God, verse 10 he says i hear many whispering terror is on every side denounce him let us denounce him say all my close friends watching for my fall perhaps he will be deceived then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him verse 11 says but the lord is with me as a dread warrior some translations may say as a as a mighty champion therefore the lord is with me as a dread warrior therefore my persecutors will stumble They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Sometimes in some situations it might be appropriate, it might be proper, it might be right for us to defend ourselves, but we don't always have to. In most situations, we can rest in the Lord and we can be patient knowing that God will do what's right and that he takes care of his people. The Lord restores his people. The Lord Lord, uh, defends his people. Thirdly, the Lord judges his enemies. The Lord judges his enemies. One of the assurances that that Joel offers the people of Judah is that the Lord doesn't uh, only judge his own people, but he also will judge the nations. He leads them to find comfort in the fact that judgment's coming to the nations as well. Look at the beginning of Joel chapter 3 again. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. He will gather them. He's going to gather the nations at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. There's an odd thing about this this detail. There's not a Valley of Jehoshaphat. No one's ever been able to find a Valley of Jehoshaphat. There was a king named Jehoshaphat, um, and, and so maybe he's talking about some place that, that's particular to that king or, or something like that. But I don't think so. The word Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. And so when he's saying he's going to gather them at the valley of Jehoshaphat, he's not saying he's going to gather them a specific place. He's, going to, he's saying he's going to gather them to the judgment of the Lord. He's going to gather them together, and they're going to have to face the Lord and give an accounting for what they have done. He's gathering them there because, he, because they've scattered his people. They had divided their land. They had sold his people. It says that they sold the boy for a price of a prostitute. And they sold the girls for enough money to buy a drink. They had robbed his people. Maybe one of the scariest statements in, in this passage is in, is in verse 4 where God says that he has not committed himself to tire and sit on and Philistia. He says, what are you to me? These are not his people, and they're going to feel the full brunt of the Lord's judgment. He continues in verses seven and eight. He says, behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return their payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. He's going to repay them for their works. The judgment coming to them will match what they had done to his people. They're going to get what they have coming. They're going to get what they have coming. The Lord is going to judge. And again, remember, Joel is comforting the people of Judah with this knowledge. God hasn't forgotten their situation. He's coming to judge the nations. Finally, in Verse 9, he says, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men draw of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. That passage, that, that, that phrasing there might sound familiar to you. Isaiah, and I think there's another prophet that, that says the opposite. He says to, uh, to, to beat your swords into, pler- into plowshares and beat your spears into pruning hooks, Right? And, and the point there is saying that, that there's going to be peace. In Isaiah, he's prophesying about the peace that's coming. You won't, you won't have a need for swords anymore. You won't have a need for spears anymore. You can beat them into plowshares and, and turn them into farming implements. Here the Lord's saying the opposite. The Lord's saying you're going to need a sword when you come to face me. You're going to need a spear. You're going to need some kind of defense when you come. Because, listen, judgment's coming. You have to give an account for what you've done. And you better have some way to offer a defense for yourself. He says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw. They're shining. God is, through, through Joel here, he's kind of sarcastically calling the nations to gather and prepare for battle. He tells them to Again, to beat their farming implements into, into weapons of war. But those tools aren't going to help them. As strong and powerful as they were when they were attacking God's people, their strength and their power is nothing compared to the Lord's. He says, the wine presses are full and the vats are overflowing with the fruit of their lives. The Lord will tread out his wrath and will overflow and overtake the nations. Sometimes it might seem like justice is not being done. In our world, especially when we look around, often it seems like those that are not committed to the Lord prosper, while those who are committed to the Lord don't. Sometimes it seems like unrighteousness and ungodliness pays off when righteousness and godliness don't. Sometimes it seems that sin rules the world, and those who resist it don't have a chance. We can rest knowing that God takes sin very seriously and that he's a righteous and a just judge. We can rest knowing that the day of the Lord is coming, and when it comes, justice will be done. We're here this morning worshiping on a Sunday morning because it's our conviction and our belief that the Lord Jesus is alive right now, reigning over his creation. And if he's alive right now, reigning over the world, he will come back one day to judge the world. And when he does, justice will be done. We can rest knowing that even if we're facing injustices right now, even if there are things that aren't dealt with right now, those things will be dealt with. Justice will be done. God restores his people. God defends his people. God judges his enemies. And then finally, the fourth point is that God saves his creation. God saves his creation. We might find comfort like the people of of uh, Judah did, we might find comfort knowing that the day of the Lord's coming. That, that's, that was Joel's purpose when he was telling the people of Judah the day of the Lord's coming, it was, it was to comfort them. And, and we might find comfort in that day or, or knowing that that day's coming as well but we may not. What we just read is that when that day comes the nations will receive judgment without mercy. The reason this may not bring us comfort is because we are the nation's. We are the nations. We are the Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenant of promise. We were having no hope and without God in the world. It's a bad, bad situation to be in. And yet, Joel talks about a bright future even for the nations. Look back to chapter 2, verse 28. He says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. In Acts chapter 2, Garth read that this this morning already, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has has, has resurrected, he's ascended into heaven, he's gone, the disciples are there, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they begin to preach in different languages. They begin to hear in different languages. And they're saying, what's going on? Maybe they're drunk. And Peter stands up and begins to preach. And he says, these men aren't drunk. Let me tell you what's happening. This that's happening today is what Joel promised back in Joel chapter 2. Joel promised us, the the Lord promised through Joel that there will be a day where the Holy Spirit's going to come down on all flesh, not just on his people Israel, but on all flesh. Peter says, this is that day. The Holy Spirit has come down on, on, on all flesh. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You and I can be part of that everyone. The nations can be part of that everyone. That passage in Ephesians 2 that I read, Paul ends that by saying this. He says, but now, that's the condition we were in. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus has met God the Father in the valley of Jehoshaphat already, the valley of the Lord's judgment, the Mount of Golgotha. He's drunk down the full cup of the Lord's judgment, pressed out in the winepress of his wrath. Those who wash in his blood can have their filthiness cleansed, can have their sins forgiven. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord doesn't discipline everyone, and he doesn't defend everyone, and he doesn't restore everyone. He only does those things for his people. For those who are not his people, his judgment still remains. But listen to what Joel says in the middle of chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, yet even now, the judgment's coming, judgment's on the way. Be, beware, judgment is, is on the way Verse 12, though, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. If you're not a part of God's people, you can be. You can be part of God's people today. Turn to the Lord, repent of your sin. Seek God for forgiveness. Ask God to restore you. He will do it. He delights to answer that prayer. He delights to take people caught up in sin, forgive them, restore them, redeem them, cleanse them from all the stains of sin. When Jesus returns in judgment and we hear the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah may it be a sound of comfort to you and not a sound of terror to you. If you are one of God's people already, rest in his righteousness. Trust in his ability and his commitment to bring justice to the world. Trust in his ability and his commitment to bring justice to your life. Be patient and disciplined, knowing that the Lord will restore you. Be patient when you're treated wrongly, when you're treated unjustly, knowing that the Lord will defend you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning that you have made yourself our God. Father, you've taken a people that are not your people and you've made us your people. God, what, a, what an unbelievable thing that that is. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, to take your judgment that rightly should have fallen on us for our sins and yet he took that for us instead so that, me right, so, so that we might receive your blessing instead of your curses. Father, I pray that each one of us here this morning is trusting in that truth. Father, I pray that you would show us our sin, lead us to repent of them. Father, I pray that you would restore us, defend us, keep us. God, we thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.